This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. This is Natalie Henshaw, Director of Historic Trades for Preservation Maryland, and you're listening to a trades takeover of PreserveCast. We're joined today by May Boley, Executive Director of Repurpose Savannah, a nonprofit organization with the mission to provide conscientious treatments for historic buildings at the end of their life cycle. Repurpose Savannah researches and documents these buildings and carefully deconstructs and salvages their architectural fabric. May Boley, their Executive Director, has finally joined us for this Preserve Cast episode. Hi. We have been friends and colleagues for three, four years. Going on four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Around the time that you started at Repurpose Savannah, right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So that's a really good lead-in to uh, talk about you (laughs) (laughs) and what you do with Repurpose Savannah and how you got into preservation and historic stuff and all that jazz. So yeah, what's your background? Well, I think I have a story that resonates with a lot of people. You know, you talk about like getting bit by the building bug. And anybody who has been bit by that bug knows what I'm talking about. Yep. Um, that certainly <laughs> happened to me. So I don't have a background in trades. I have a current ground in trades. <laughs> My background is in much more sort of like conventional work. Um, before I got involved with this, I was running a marketing consultancy, very um at home on my computer job. Right. And before that, uh, I was living in Chicago doing my marketing consultancy. I also worked on a micro farm. I uh, waited a lot of tables (laughs) in my day. So I guess if I wanted to paint a picture of how I came to this, I would say I was like a fully fledged, like career woman with like a master's degree and like a company before I got bit by the bug. And when it bit me, it bit me so hard that my life doesn't resemble anything like what it was before. Uh, I couldn't be more happy about this. Okay. So what was the bite? Like what, what changed you from career driven, computer oriented? Yeah. Yeah, wearing overalls and getting soot on your face and yeah, <laughs> full of calluses and scratches. How did this happen? Um, okay, so when I moved to Savannah, I I was working for myself, so I brought my own company here. It was mostly, you know, computer work, so I could do all my work from home. It didn't matter really where I was in the country, right? But okay. I was living in this beautiful historic town, and I'd always imagined that like many people, I'd always imagine that someday maybe I would buy a historic house and fix it up and move into it. And I'm here in this place and I'm thinking this is going to be the place where I'm doing that. And then I realized, crap, I don't have any of the skills I might need to accomplish this task. Right. <laughs> like fury space, it seems totally doable. But then when you're actually looking at brick and mortar, then it's like, wow, no, I need some skills. Right. <laughs> so I was looking around and I discovered that there's a local technical college here in Savannah that had a really great hands on uh, program in historic preservation, which, you know, Natalie, because that's where I we do. met. Yes. <laughs> uh, so this is at Savannah Technical College. Uh, the preservation trades program is a very hands on uh, skills based trade trade feeder program. And I started taking classes just for fun, just for fun. 
just to get out of my house okay. and to make friends and to gain some new skills. And I just wanted to learn about, you know, the history of this place. And I thought, you know, doing it through the built environment would be a good, a good way to do that. And the next thing I knew, I mean, I just, you know, anybody who's listening to this, who, who knows, I just became fully obsessed. Like, it's just so <laughs> cool and fascinating. Uh, it was a great program. And so before I knew it, I had connected with this this opportunity to work in deconstruction and to really develop the deconstruction program for this cup for this nonprofit. Right. And I have never looked back. It wasn't, it wasn't not even a year later when I had closed up my company and I no longer offer marketing <laughs> consulting services. It was just like, I'm doing this now. I'm occupied. Yes, occupied. <laughs> okay. Did so you went for fun to Savannah Tech. Were you ever degree seeking? Did you want to get a degree? Did you now want to have a degree or do you think it's not necessary for what you're doing? Well, in the beginning, I was not at all degree motivated. Not at all. Uh, I had no desire. uh, I thought, you know, um, pursue what was interesting to me. Take the classes I wanted to take. Um, Fortunately, that was all of them. So (laughs) so I did end up qualifying for the technical certificate. So now I do have the technical certificate Uh, in historic preservation. So I'm a degree holding graduate. Uh, mostly because it was so much fun. I couldn't, there was right. no class I didn't want to take. Right. And uh, just for some clarity on the technical certificate, I think um, there's a diploma, which is so many hours and then the certificate mm-hmm. and then the full-fledged associate's degree. So you can yeah. still like, you, you can scale up on the level of certification from Savannah Technical College at least. And I think similar models exist for other colleges. So yes, uh, that's right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> just for clarity for those who are not familiar with the technical college system, which um, I don't know how many listeners are. I would say get used to it. It's a good system. I, I got to tell you, I, I, you know, I tell a lot of people, like I have a lot of degrees. I, I mean, I have two undergraduate, I have two bachelors and a master's. So that's, I mean, a lot by some standards. Right. And <laughs> I have never had such a good educational experience as I had in trade school. I thought Same. I never wanted to go to school again after my master's. I was so burnt out. Never again, never again. And it was because the program was super hands-on and not very like, you know, not a lot of research and writing and not a yes. lot of papers. And that's what attracted me to the program. And I got to tell you, without a doubt, hands down, best time I've ever had in school in my life. Same. Uh, very similar situation. I have a bachelor's and a master's, but the most employable degree I've had is from Savannah Technical. I went back for an associate's degree and it was a very different learning education. I, yep. I don't know about you, but... I had to learn how to learn, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Like there was so much that was experiential that Mm -hmm. you have to figure out uh, your own sensory abilities of how to swing the hammer so you don't hit your thumb. Yeah, Somebody can tell you how to do it, but you have to figure out on your own and learn on your own how to not hit your thumb with the hammer. (laughs) And it's a great point, right? It's very different than going to, uh, I don't know, academic college and having syllabus laid out for you and very clear definitions. And it's just, it's a very different type of learning. Um, I found that to be true just in, 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 in the sense of my retention as well. I found that you know, learning in an academic setting is very much about memorizing and yes. you, you, you really try to commit it to long-term memory, but, you know, at, at, at worst, you commit it to short-term memory so you can pop it into an essay or onto a test, right? But right. in the trades, that is not going to fly. You know, if you don't learn it with your muscles, if you don't learn it with your body, 
right. that you won't be able to perform on your practicum at the end of the quarter. Like there, yes. you can't fudge it. You can't fake yes. trades knowledge. Yes. And even the level of critical thinking, you can read about the situation in the book, but when you're faced with the building, with all the variables that just happen because of, you know, life, what you read in the book might not necessarily apply. And so you have yeah. to go through the critical reasoning of, okay, well, here are the things that I know and here's the situation. Yeah. What do I do? <laughs> oh my gosh. And that has become, that, that is such a, a true to life reality when you're working in old buildings, all because you can know everything there is to know about historic buildings, but no two buildings are the same. No building is ever what you think right. it's going to be. You're always, always, always going to face unexpected challenges. Yes. Right. Yeah. We've talked about that and how you prepare contracts and bidding and estimate. Like how do you prepare for the unexpected, right? You yeah. need to prepare to be unprepared, but in a prepared way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, this is a good transition to the types of projects. Maybe what is uh, your first deconstruction project? And maybe let's talk about deconstruction too. What is it? How is it different than demolition? Deconstruction and demolition, they're not the same thing. Uh, I can, I love to talk about this, particularly with preservationists, because right. I think preservationists have such a huge opportunity to really make some changes that will benefit so many different aspects of our modern reality. And I think also preservationists are some of my most uh, stubborn <laughs> Um, opponents, because right. I think that there's a big gap in understanding. And I, I, I could talk about this a hundred ways to Tuesday. So I'll try to keep it kind of succinct. Right. <laughs> the major difference between deconstruction and demolition is what's happening to the materials. So in demolition, of course, a big excavator comes in, crushes a building, puts everything into a dumpster, which is then taken to the landfill and dumped. Right. Deconstruction, and particularly the way that we do deconstruction, we strive for zero landfill job sites, and we are pretty successful uh, at putting absolutely none of an old building in the landfill. We keep absolutely every piece that could be reused for anything. If it could be reused in a building, best. If it could be reused for craft, also good. Art, you name it. Furniture. There's a million different things that all of these bits and pieces can, can do. And then finally, of course, the things that don't necessarily have a really practical reuse application go to the recycling. So at the very least, they're not clogging up a landfill somewhere, if that's at all possible. That difference should should change minds, right? That's That should right. be all that we need to say. But it's not all I need to say because uh, it's a lot more nuanced than that. You know, you, you could have two different deconstruction companies, one that's approaching it from a real um, commercial mindset that's looking for profit, that's looking to make money off the value of luxury home goods and materials. Or you could do sort of what we do, which is approach it from a from a hardcore preservation mindset where we are doing an extensive amount of research and documentation so that even though the materials are disappearing from the landscape, they're not disappearing from our, from our knowledge. In fact, if anything, the unfortunate situation where we're finding a, build, a historic building is getting removed is now sparking research that might never have occurred. So it's right. almost a benefit, right, to um, hire us, make sure that all the information about this historic building is documented and recorded and made available to the public. And then those histories, those stories are attached to every single piece of salvage 
And those stories go with those pieces of salvage into their new lives. And they're told over and over again in the community. Everybody really attaches, they, they connect to the stories because it's, it's meaningful. It has particular meaning in our local economy. It's a hyper-local, small circular market that we're working in. And so the meaning is so amplified. It's like an exponential increase in value, not just dollar value, which is true, but we talk a lot about like the triple bottom line, people, planet, profit, you know, profit isn't, you know, money is a tool that we use. It's not our end goal. It's a tool that we use to keep all of this stuff from vanishing. Right. Right. Which somebody needs to do. So is that how you would uh, classify deconstruction as part of preservation? It's not even just the materials not going to landfill and us keeping it around, but even the work you do on the documentation side mm-hmm. and the research side. And then yeah. Also making it available to the public. That's on yeah, your website, every, right? Yeah. Every house we take apart, you can read about on our website. And some of them, one of the newer things we're doing, we're actually getting 3D scans of our more recent projects. So you That's can take exciting. a 3D tour of a building that doesn't exist anymore. Like you can still walk through the building after we've taken it down. That's exciting. Which is so, really fun. I know the argument that some preservationists have, the Stubborn ones, I think, as you called them. Stubborn ones. Yes. Is how does this not encourage deconstruction? So if yeah. this is a viable option instead of preservation, how do we actually save the buildings if the option is, oh, I can preserve it or I can make money by deconstructing and just build a new house? So yeah. how does that fit in? Like, what's your... Yeah. Uh, uh, Reasoning against that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't even have, it's not even a complicated pitch. I can just give you some data. So I always say uh, deconstruction is an alternative to demolition. It is not an alternative to preservation, right? Mm, You're only going to deconstruct a building when all opportunities to save the building in place have been exhausted. This is a last ditch option. This is the this is only this should only be discussed and is only on the table when all of your other efforts have reached a dead end, which we all know happens. Unfortunately, does, we wish yeah. it didn't. You and I wish it didn't. I wish no historic building were ever torn down. And I tell people all the time, you know, I'm living for the day when no historic building is going to the dump, and on that day, I will happily hang up my crowbar. But until that happens, we've got work to do. Right. We got to we got to stem the tide. We are hemorrhaging historic materials into the landfill, many of which can never be replaced ever again. Right. And so we must accept this reality and try to do better. And then we can all collectively work toward a reality that doesn't involve the tearing down of historic buildings. And deconstruction has a pretty big role to play in that with regards to policy. So, of course, the shining example in our national awareness of uh, the the potential for deconstruction as preservation practice is, of course, the city of Portland, Oregon. Oh, Portland. Portland (laughs) is the Portland. Yes, I know. Everything happens on the West Coast. Um, Portland is the first city in the nation to develop uh, an an ordinance, local policy, that makes it illegal to demolish a historic building. This is huge. Wow. Yeah. Illegal. It's illegal. If the building is older than 1950, it has to be deconstructed if it's going to be removed. So what does this mean? It doesn't mean you can't take a building down. It just means you can't hire a demo company to take it down. You have to hire a deconstruction company. And so materially, what that means and what that has meant in Portland and what that will mean in other cities is deconstruction companies don't have to compete with demolition companies to take down jobs. Okay. Demolition is fast and cheap. Deconstruction is very slow and expensive. So if decon doesn't have to compete with demo, then our price point can go up. Right? Right. 
And when the price goes up, it's no longer so cheap and quick to vanish a historic building. So what we have seen in Portland is a drop-off in the number of historic buildings that are getting demolished because the cost of removing them has increased because now you have to have it deconstructed. Right, right. So and then people are like, policy. oh, it's actually yeah, economically viable yeah, to the preserve. Problem, exactly. The problem isn't, oh, these horrible decon people want to come and take our historic buildings apart. The problem is policy advantages the demolition of right. historic buildings, of any building. Right. All right. There are no alternatives in most markets. It's the only option and it's very affordable. So if we want to stop losing our historic building stock, then we need to make demolition harder. Right. We need to get either more expensive. We need to increase the cost of our landfilling, which is very cheap. Right. And we need to try to get our hands around the services that people are allowed to engage with in order to handle historic buildings. And deconstruction right. should be the absolute standard for removal. It should be the only option for removal of a, of a historic building. Um, so we, you were mentioning policy. And what's that type of policy look like? You know, we, we've before discussed carrot versus stick. Do you think mm -hmm. in Savannah, you could just come in and start instituting a policy against de or demolition of historic buildings? Yeah, I do think so. And I think we're already getting started on it. Um, and I, I do think... Yeah, it is exciting. Thank you. <laughs> uh, something I've been working working for and dreaming of for, for years now. Um, yeah, you have to take it in bites. So every economy is different. Every local community has got different needs. It's got different building stock. It has different history, right? right. So one of the... Um, one of the good things and the bad things about this policy struggle is that it really does need to occur on a very local level. There is no federal regulation around demolition. This is regulated at the state and city level. <clears throat> That's going to have to be true for deconstruction as well. I wish that there was a federal policy that says any historic building in the entire North American, or at least in the entirety of the United States, has to be deconstructed if you want to remove it, but that's not very likely. We're going to start grassroots, right? Maybe, you know, 300 years from now, that'll be like a no-brainer. But for now, it's going to be grassroots. It's going to be local. And that's good because it's going yes. to allow everybody's unique and individual needs in their community to be expressed in a good policy that fits what those needs are. Right. And that's the best examples of preservation has been those grassroots efforts yeah, going yeah. upwards. Like yes. the locals set the example for the federal and the state the to follow. Yeah, that's right. pretty typical. And like, you know, for example, here in Savannah, we have a, a great number of local historic districts. They've done a wonderful job. We also have some national, but we've done a wonderful job of creating policies around those protected neighborhoods. And right. that's how it should be. I mean, there are neighborhoods, so we should be the ones who are making decisions about them. Right. And so what we're doing here is trying to ease into this conversation. You know, we're not trying to drop an atom bomb on business as usual. We understand industries shifts with time. Uh, and I, I, I like that you brought up the carrot versus the stick. Obviously, every community has different needs and different players. And so maybe my strategy wouldn't work well in another community, but it's certainly more my style to go with the carrot, try to lead people to greener pastures rather than push them. I will right. push if I have to though. Right. <laughs> so, do, you, so, do you know about Portland? Um, did they do carrot first then stick or were they, did they just yeah. institute the ban yeah. on demolition? 
Yeah, no, it was a lot of carrot before the stick happened. And that's what we're doing as well. You know, there was a nonprofit just like ours. That was sort of the vanguard. That's what you typically see. There's a nonprofit who's like, we're doing this and we're going to make the reality before we ask other people to join us. Right. 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 You know, you can't ask people to utilize a service that doesn't exist. So the development Mm -hmm. of that local industry is like, that has to come first. That's what we've been working on for years here in Savannah is actually creating a service so that we can require people to use it someday. Yes. And, and not I just, think, of course, you know, we want competition. Yeah. I would have liked to see competition. <laughs> right. Well, and it's, um, I think a lot of people can't see, they can't visualize without examples. So it really helps having examples of how it can work. And then people can follow that too. And they can see, oh, yeah. it does actually work. This is viable. This is a good idea. This yeah. is how we can policy-wise make it happen too. Yes. And it's nice because, I mean, it's not nice that the planet is an environmental crisis, but what is nice is that a lot of municipalities are now under pressure to try to meet sustainability goals. Yes. And construction is what the, one of the top three offenders of environmental crises. Yeah. It is. It is one of the top three producers of waste on the planet, the construction and demolition industry. It's staggering how much waste this industry creates. Yeah. There is a so address, addressing the one industry can really help municipalities right. meet their goals. So that's a really uh, that's a really happy circumstance for us right. right now. Okay, so do you want to talk about embodied energy then? Should we get into that? Love to. <laughs> okay, <laughs> what is embodied words, energy, right? May? What is it? Can you okay. define it? Okay, embodied energy can be described really in two ways. Um, there's obviously the carbon that's caught up in the material that we're talking about, right? Right. That's embodied. But what really people are talking about when they're talking about embodied energy is all of the energy that it took to get it to the current state that it's in. So if it's a floorboard. Yes. Let's use one floorboard as the example for this. Yeah. Okay. So we've got one floorboard, a historic floorboard in a 1900 house here in Savannah. Yes. There's carbon in that wood. There was carbon in the wood. There's still carbon in the wood. Oh, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> pretty cool. <laughs> and, and if that goes to the landfill, we're releasing that embodied carbon back into the atmosphere. And that's sad. But what we're also doing and what we're also talking about is the energy that went into cutting down the tree, right. milling right. the tree into lumber, transporting that to the mill shop, milling that into a tongue and groove, transporting that to the job site, and then the labor of installing it in the house. So there's all this energy that's been used in the production of this floorboard that then has been wasted when that floorboard goes to the landfill and decomposes. It's just lost in the calculation of our total carbon output as a species. And then also the carbon footprint of the replacement, because usually if you're taking out you have to replace, which means that whole entire cycle gets repeated exactly. just for that one floorboard. Yeah, times rather than, however many floorboards. Exactly. Times so many millions of floorboards. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, rather than, you know, banking on all that investment, riding that wave into the future for another application, we're just going to throw it all away, start back at ground zero and start costing, just ringing up the credit card right, <laughs> uh, in carbon debt. Right. And, you know, I'm a window person and that is often the thought I have with these historic windows that people want to replace. It's not just all the arguments against replacement windows, but even if the window needs work, it's been there a hundred years and it's still there. 
And yes. what is the value of just replacing a part of one of the sashes in the entire window system versus trashing all of that for a full mm-hmm. replacement window? And yeah. it seems like a lot for just one, but it's not taken in the context of the full embodied energy of that entire window. Yes. And windows are some of the most carbon dense items I in know. any store. Right? I know. The glass and the amount of detail and the amount of labor that went into producing them. So they're I love- like, I mean, it, I wish, I wish that they came, I wish that there was, you know, like a hovering carbon ticker over every object so that we could just be like, <laughs> look how much, you know, look how many carbon dollars you're throwing in the garbage right now and how many you're going to have to spend to replace this. It, it might not be actual dollars. And it actually is, as you and I know, actual right. dollars. Plus this huge carbon debt. Carbon debt. Oh, this is an app idea. Oh, yeah. Carbon debt app, right? You hover it and it tells you and then it adjusts for price at the time. Oh, yeah. Love it. All right. A listener needs to get on that. All right. <laughs> Do the carbon debt app. Yes. Great. <laughs> that would be really great. And let me talk to you about the value of the salvage materials in this context of a window. So a lot of the times what happens here in the South is rot. <laughs> Yeah, damp. It's moist here. I don't know. What's the low? Seventy percent is usually the lowest humidity around here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're lucky, <laughs> crisp day. That's a crisp day here. Yeah. So often you see rot, and particularly rot on the sill. And a lot of historic buildings, it's the old heart pine. We replace in kind because that stands the test of time. But mm. a lot of people are really surprised we don't just use pressure treated. But let me tell you what, we've seen plenty of pressure treated replacement cells completely rotten after mm-hmm. like five, 10 years. Even yeah. those historic ones that are a hundred years old, man, those are, they're still performing pretty well. <laughs> Let me tell you mm-hmm. what. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the value of this historic salvage in our regards too, is that we cannot go and get that at the store. We cannot go and get old, dense, heart pine wood for this exact purpose. It's all, you know, the grain's loose and it's, uh, mm, I don't know. It's just, color. yeah, it's the wrong color. It's subpar. It just is subpar. Mm. Um, I don't know if we have time to get into wood science. <laughs> I would love to. I know I have to watch right. myself because I, I, of all the things I could talk about, that is probably the most right. close to my heart. <laughs> Right. And I have a lot to say about it. It's true. They don't grow them like they used to. They don't grow them like they used to. We literally cut them all down. We did. And we are not patient enough to get them back. (laughs) So it literally is a um, non-renewable resource, what you have in the yard. It I cannot get that anywhere else. And the value is so great for our purposes for that reason. It's just uh so that's where I see the value, particularly on the preservation side we preserve windows we restore windows yes i i won't say i need those materials but those materials make my job more preservationally sound <laughs> maybe that's the yeah. best way to put it like i don't feel comfortable replacing with the pres- uh pressure treated wood because it's full of chemicals you know, it's like formaldehyde and arsenic is in there it's copper just, sulfate yeah yeah nastiness that's why it's green. That's why it's green. That's, That's why it's green. you. Something's wrong here. Yeah, it's literally full of chemicals. Oh, yeah. goodness. Yeah, and I I mean, I'm a preservationist at heart, even though I spend my time taking buildings apart. And so for me, the highest and best use, the thing that makes my heart sing is when these materials are going back to their original use. Like right. when a stair tread gets reused as a stair tread. Right. Or when a floorboard gets reused as a floorboard or when a window sash gets reused as a window sash and not like a chalkboard. <laughs> Like, yeah, 
No, I mean, totally support and love the crafties because they're keeping this stuff out of the dump too. But like best, 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 highest and best is when historic materials that are still good are going into historic mm-hmm. buildings to replace the bits that are not still good. Right, right. Because that's what they're built for. Yes. So they're they're good it, for it. <laughs> exactly. And the, yeah. I mean, there's a reason we cut all these trees down. I mean, they were like, I mean, to the Europeans who were coming here from like, you know, tree ravaged Europe where, you know, Europeans had cut down most of their own stock, um, you know, came here to this like unbelievable, colossal, spectacular forest of old growth wood trees that were in, enormous and unfathomable to those sensibilities. Uh, and then not only were they just big and plentiful, but the quality of the wood was, is, right. is, was, is still after hundreds of years, absolutely sensational and unparalleled. Right. So we, you know, we cut, we cut down these trees to build North America. And now I always like to tell people there's more biomass of certain historic species, the premium species of American lumber in historic buildings now than there is left in the forest. So one last point about the wood signs too, about how the trees in the area are suited for the area as well, right? So that's the other thing is pressure treated lumber is intended for anywhere and everywhere. Mm -hmm. But if you look at Savannah, one of the things is pine that's around the area and the heart pine is designed to survive in the area. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's natural. It's naturally rot resistant. It's naturally yeah. termite resistant. Yeah, it holds up better to bugs and weather and heat and damp than any other species. Right, because it's one that grows here, and it's right. different up up coast. You know, the eastern white pine was is a big deal up in New England, where right. it's less wet and hot, and that is a superior performing tree for that climate right. because that's what grew there. Because that's what grew there, right? And yeah, it just um, we've standardized and internationalized building when buildings were made to be designed for the local environment. And a lot of those things just do not transcend across different environments and climates. And part of that goes into the materials and what we end up using across the board that maybe shouldn't be used across the board. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. All right. So enough with wood signs. Let's talk about, I know, (laughs) some people will be interested, but (laughs) um, let's talk about a typical day for you and your crew. Let's say it's a a Tuesday and you guys are working on a project. What does that look like? Oh gosh. Um, Okay, great. So we're going to assume on this Tuesday, we are on a job, which Mm -hmm. most Tuesdays we are. Okay. Uh, so crew gets together at seven. We do work 10 hour days. Um, full-timers work four tens, uh, part-timers, you know, less than that. Right. But, um, 10 hour days really allow us to get the most out of the job, a job site day. So right. we meet at the lumber yard, everybody grabs their lunch and, and their safety qu- equipment and jumps into the company vehicles and we cruise out to the job site. And Katie, who is my assistant director, queen of my world, runs our crew. She's the boss of the job site. Um, I trained her. I taught her everything I know. She teaches me things too. Um, Anyways, so Katie's in charge. She's the queen. So they usually have like a start of the shift meeting, talk about what the objectives are for that day. She's very task oriented, which is a great thing for a deconstructionist to be. Perfect. Yeah. yeah, so she likes to visualize the end goal. <laughs> and then we all work there, work toward that by the end of the day. But it's going to involve, depending on what phase we're on in the building, any number of technical skills. So in the very beginning of a project, it's uh, cleaning out the finish, you know, pulling all the trim, knocking down the plaster, taking out the last. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then we progress to the next phase of the building, which is 
the actual frame. When we start in the roof, roof day is a really exciting day. It's like the day that it's like on, it's like go time, you know, right. from here on out, the building is going to look different every day. It's going to start visually disappearing. Mm-hmm. So taking off roof boards and we start bringing the chimneys down level by level. And then we do wall by wall until we're on the ground. And then the last phase is the foundation. We scrape that away. And um, every day usually does involve some amount of deconstruction, actually using crowbars and sawzalls to take the building apart. And then we usually have a few people who are working on processing, doing some denailing right there on site. And the materials are, yeah, Yeah. that helps. That helps us not get so backlogged at the lumber yard. Um, And it also just helps keep, you know, keep the crew um, moving, you know, rotate out of different tasks. Sometimes there is no lull if there's There's denailing. Oh yeah. Oh, you're going to take a break. You mean like a denail break? Great. Awesome. (laughs) Go denail and take a break. (laughs) That's so true. And then those materials are getting loaded straight onto our trailer and our flatbed where they're getting brought to the lumber yard. And then they're going to get their finished process, which means they're going to get trimmed and measured and they're going to get merchandise made available for sale. Listen on our website. Are you all unique in that you also merchandise what you salvage? It is unusual for both to be under one roof. So typically okay. deconstruction service is one company and like a reuse retail is another company. These businesses often work together, um, whether through a donation and um, tax deduction relationship or through a direct purchase arrangement. Right. Um, so it's odd that we do both and it's exhausting that we do both. Right. <laughs> But we didn't have either here. So we had to do both. You can't have one without the other. Right. So we have done the hard thing of developing both businesses at the same time. And sometimes it does feel like, oh my gosh, you know, like a really steep challenge to try to be developing two totally different business models with the same crew and with the same roof at the same time. But it has its advantages as well. You know, we, we get to see, you know, retail prices come in instead of wholesale prices and which we get to make our value back, which we desperately need to do because- Again, like I mentioned before, in the field, we're competing with demolition. So we're lucky to break even on the cost of taking a building down. Often we go into the red on the cost of removing the building. And we have to make that up in the sale of the materials in order to stay afloat. We've talked about that before, just the economic viability of all of this. And it's, um, I don't know, like a cloudy area, I think, for a lot of people. It's yeah. a very, most people don't have any background on the finances of what this all takes, but um, I mean, what are the needs of the organization? You have your crew, oh my workers' gosh. comp, oh, yeah, trailer equipment. Right, yeah. Right. Pay- payroll is our biggest cost, but we have to carry four kinds of insurance. And yes, we have to have a whole fleet. And right. it, it's not cheap to run. I mean, anybody in construction and demolition will tell you it's not cheap. But it, in construction and demolition, they make a fat profit margins. Right. We are right. not. Right. <laughs> and also, yeah. Yeah, it's unpredictable. And I think that's the same with restoration companies. It's so hard to have a standard model because there is literally no standard model. Yeah, there's no standard. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to add a problem of competing with demolition prices. Yep. Although it is starting to change. So if I can give hope to people who who are hoping to create this type of opportunity in their community. Yeah, it's really hard at first. But what we're starting to see after you know, doing this for several years is that we have really started to differentiate ourselves in the market. So because our, what we offer is different, people are, are, are interested in hiring, particularly our services for more than just, I feel bad. 
I feel bad about tearing this down, but I don't necessarily have, you know, five extra thousand dollars to pay for a service. So I'll do it if it's the same price, but, 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 but what we're seeing now is more clients that are like, no, no, I, I will pay more for your service because I want either the eco-friendly aspect of it, or I want the value ads. Like we offer research and documentation, you know, like no demo company Mm, does that. No, (laughs) not that we know. (laughs) No, There could be one out there, but I'd be surprised. If you're out there, call me. Exactly. Um, (laughs) Show yourself. Uh, Yes. Let's talk. Um, Yeah. Oh, what was I just saying? I lost my train of thought. Uh, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The value add. No, no. Typically, if you want to get your building researched and documented, you have to hire like a specialized company to do that. You know, you're not going to pay any extra. We're going to take your building apart, just like a demo company. And you're going to end up with a full historic write-up 3D scan, line drawings, architectural renderings, like heavily photo documented, not only the, as it was, but also in the stages of deconstruction, when you can see inside and see the bones and we can see the tool marks that were left behind by craftspeople. And we can see their scrawled notes on the wood and we can see the evidence of their craftsmanship. I mean, the stuff that like we really geek out on. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I will say that now that we've really spent, we've done the hard work and we've spent, we've put in our, paid our dues and put in the work to create a name for ourselves is really great service providers that have a lot of added value that we're starting to get customers that are interested, not only in the like research aspect or the environmental aspect, but also particularly with regards to partials. So we're getting, we're getting um, quite good at, we're, we're getting a lot of work in, in restorations. Now, most restorations involve some aspect of demo. Right. They do. Cause yeah, they if do. you are redoing a floor, yeah, the floor has yeah. to go somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Like right. let me give you a, for instance, and I'll try to be short, but like, um, we just got a job in Charleston, our first job in Charleston, which I'm super pumped about new market for us. And the woman who hired us was so happy when she got a hold of me because she told me that she had spoken to six demo contractors about doing a very careful and sensitive demolition of certain aspects of the house in order to reuse those pieces and parts elsewhere. Because this lovely woman doesn't want to replace, you know, actual historic fabric with, you know, new wood from the Home Depot. She wants to reuse, like, for example, trim around door casings that are going to be moved. She wants that trim carefully removed and and relocated around another door. Love this. This is exactly how people need to be handling historic buildings. And six demo companies told her that that was not possible, that all of the materials are going to be collateral damage. It couldn't be saved. It was just how it was going to have to be. It was lies. Lies. (laughs) (laughs) That is good. We don't feel like doing it. (laughs) Yeah. That's too hard. We're not doing that. Yeah. (laughs) So of course I laughed. I'm like, of course it can be done. That's all we do. Like we wouldn't have jobs like we wouldn't have anything to sell if we broke everything like if you're gonna break everything of course just tear the building down so no of course it can all be saved you just have to be careful it's a totally different ethos it's a totally different skill set it's a different mindset it's a different it's a different service it is and i'll go back again to that variability is like yeah you can take a piece of trim apart with no problem but sometimes you know somebody puts a frame and nail in there and you don't know that until you're taking it apart but yep. if you don't care about saving it, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. we, you know, we're good at this point. You know, we do this all day, every all right. day. Yeah. So I know how to notice. Oh, there's a framing nail and I know how to work around it. And yeah. I know how to get that nail out without damaging the trim. Right. That's my job. Okay. What's your favorite tool? Oh, great. I know. It's so hard. I, 
it's going to be boring. I'm n- I'm going to go with a I'm going to go with crowbar. Oh, really? The full it's fledged like, big boy. I like the big boy. Okay. I like my big one. I have like my favorite one. I know it's like pretty boring and typical, but I have gotten really good with a crowbar. I, I, I like to say I'm like a surgeon with a crowbar. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. I mean, I, it's, it's I wasn't this good with a crowbar when I first started doing this. And now I could pull your teeth with a crowbar if I wanted to. <laughs> that muscle learning what we were talking about earlier. Because, yeah, you can know theoretically about yep. the physics of leverage. But until you're the one denailing, we've seen them. We've trained some people with denailing. Yeah. There's a lot of people who don't understand leverage when it actually... <laughs> It comes to pulling a nail. (laughs) It's really true. Yep. Yep. (laughs) All right. So what's unique about your crew is there's no men. There's no men on our crew. There's no men. Weird. Right? So why is that? Why is that? (laughs) Yes. Great question. I love to talk about this. Yes. Our program is a training program specifically for women in the trades. Well, specifically for women who are looking for careers in construction and demolition, or more specifically historic preservation, all the skills you gain on our, in our training program will lend you to a number of careers. Yes, of course you can get a job in demolition. Don't do that. Or you can go and create your own (laughs) construction company, or you can go and work on a construction crew. In fact, my graduates are um, employed with some of the best preservation companies here in town, which is wonderful. Um, Anyways, so why, why are we all women? What's that about? Uh, well, it happened a little bit organically. So we've been a training program since the beginning and that's for a really obvious and utilitarian reason. You can't hire people who know how to do this. They don't exist. They don't exist. (laughs) This isn't an industry that's existing. So if we want workers, we have to train them. We have to train them, at least here in this region. Now, Portland's a different story. It's like a whole $11 million industry up there now, but this is, you know, after years and years of policy. Down here, it's fledgling. We're brand new. So we have to train people. So in the beginning, uh, our training program was co-ed. You know, it didn't, we didn't even specify. It wasn't a thing. But I did observe over and over and over again, the men who were in our training program interfering with the learning of the women who are in our training program. And I want to also say, I think that for myself personally, I would, I never felt inhibited about pursuing this type of thing because my mom's sort of not gender normative. You know, my mom's sort of like a handy lady. She's, um, you know, so growing up, it never occurred to me, but I, I guess I didn't really realize the extent to which that wasn't true for everybody until I started working on this project and I was visible on our social media. And I can't tell you how many women came to apply who told me it was because they saw me and they thought, shoot, I can do it too. So mm-hmm. that, that in and of itself tells you something, something about, you know, if you don't ever see yourself, if anybody that looks like you doing a thing, it's harder to imagine that you can do it. Yes. Right. There's so, studies that prove it too. Yes, this is science. Yeah. So, so, so anyways, so that factor, me hearing that women were only there because they were seeing me doing it. And that was raising a red flag in my brain. And then also just witnessing, you know, like dudes taking tools out of these ladies' hands to like literally for them, literally just taking the tools out of their hands. I was like, how are they ever going to learn? And I was getting frustrated that I had to put more of my energy into policing these guys mm-hmm. than I, than I could put into like my training. I wanted to focus on, the, focus on the job. Right. So, you know, those factors combined with doing some research and there is a very significant gender gap in construction and demolition. It's one of the worst ones of any major industry uh, at this point. Still only 10% of the workforce is female and the vast majority of those are office jobs. Only one in 100 
field workers is a woman. Yeah. And these are good jobs. You know, yeah. there's a lot of job security. There's a lot of good benefits. There's good starting pay, especially for skilled labor. So, you know, it's a problem that there's this gender gap, that there's this gender bias, that there's this intangible, sometimes unspoken and sometimes overtly spoken, yes. you know, <laughs> yes, <laughs> sometimes it's really overt, like, oh, honey, so you don't want to do this. You'll yeah. get dirty. Like people have said that to us. Um, so anyways, all those things sort of conspired in my brain and I just decided, you know what, what the heck, like, let's create a program where it's like just specifically for women. And when I say for women, what I really mean is outsiders. So we like to say women plus. So I mean, women, women identified people, queer people, anybody who really feels on the outside, who feels like they can't access these training programs. And there are a lot of training programs for construction and demolition, and you will find and it is changing, but you will find that the vast majority of teachers and students are male, if not all of them. You know, my sister applied for a training program with a company in Jacksonville, Florida. This company has been around for 80 years. She's the first woman that's ever applied for the trades, for the trades training program. And since oh. she applied and she really fought in up Jacksonville. in Jacksonville, it's a huge city. It's a huge city. Right. She was the only one that the only one and they were so confused when she was first applying, but at least they let her, you know, she got turned away by several other institutions before she found this one. And, and they were confused Gosh. about it. They were like, are you sure? And she was like, no, I really am. I want to do this. And, uh, and you know, she, she faced discrimination and harassment on the job site. She, she overcame it and she worked through it and it stinks that she had to, but I'm very proud of her. And now of course, since she has broken through that glass ceiling, there are several other women in the program awesome. because they saw her. That's awesome. Does it yeah. make that make you proud? It does. Yeah. And angry. It, yes. It is a simultaneously feeling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I think any woman in the trades can speak to at least some of those experiences. And mm-hmm. I like you also was in the restaurant industry before this. And that was one area where my skills as a server were never questioned. And my skills as a teacher also were never questioned, mm-hmm. but I definitely faced sexual harassment. Yeah. So a different form of sexism, <laughs> right? Yes. I have never had my skills and knowledge questioned so much as in construction, mm-hmm. but I haven't faced anywhere near the same level of sexual harassment. And I feel like those get interchanged so much, but mm-hmm. I mean, not that sexual harassment is good by any means. <laughs> it's all sexism nope. is bad, but it was definitely different to get into a field where everybody just assumed you were incompetent. I had never had that before. And it was very demoralizing. And I don't like that it has to be based on the strength of the character of the individual to withstand, um, I don't want to say a level yeah. of mental abuse, but in some cases it really can be because of a passion of the job to make it through. And, you know, people wonder why there's not diversity in the trades. And it's like, I think anybody (laughs) who's a minority could tell you exactly why. People (laughs) on the outside aren't wondering. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And it's because you constantly face that. And when you're faced with that or like a well-paying job where you're not constantly questioned about your abilities and if you really want to be there. And um, sometimes, yeah, I don't blame people for getting out of it for that reason. I don't either. And it's amazing. A lot of our, a lot of our apprentices, a lot of them come in with no skill whatsoever. So that's scary in and of them, you know, for them Mm -hmm. to try to enter a program without any skills, like, oh my gosh, it's terrifying when you're going to be in a room full of like 
men who have what I call like the birthright of tool use. Now this is not universal. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not true yes. of every man that he grows up like, but a lot of men are encouraged to, to play with tools from a very small age. You get hammers that are made out of plastic when you're a little boy, as opposed to Barbies, you know, and you get your little tool bench, you know, boys are encouraged to pick up tools and women are discouraged from picking up tools. Yes. So that in and of itself means that entry level, a lot of women feel that they're already at a deficit and they are already at a deficit by comparison to their peers. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I was going to say some of the women that come into our program are these unskilled, you know, people who've never worked with any kind of tools, but the others are people who are like refugees from more hostile work environments. That's a good, you know, refugees, they, yes. <laughs> yes. They're like, refugees. Yes. they're like, come to us like battered and worn down because they put in so many years in these environments that where they're not appreciated and where it's assumed that they're incompetent and where they're not paid the same as their peers. And a lot of them are even taking a pay cut to come and work with me because and it's, worth it's like it. an encouraging place where they're actually learning and developing their skills, even though they're going to make a little less money. Cause I'd love to pay everybody a million dollars. I'm just a poor nonprofit. Yeah. Um, they're willing to, you know, take a pay cut to come and develop their skills with me. So they know they can go back to the job market with the skills that they weren't learning at their other jobs. Right. Right. Cause, cause their bosses weren't, weren't investing or their peers weren't investing in their, in their growth. Right. So here's actually a little thought experiment. What your opinion on affinity groups. Uh, so we have had conversations on a personal level about this many times. And so, you know, we started a drinking group for exactly this reason. <laughs> yes, specifically for blue collar women in the trades to come and uh, vent about yep. the issues they were facing. So we had this monthly drinking group. It's great. It's great for networking. Yeah. Um and I, I see the value of affinity groups like this, but then I also see how it can like keep us away from, you mm-hmm. know, talking to men about this. So what do you yeah. think about things like this with affinity groups? What role do they really play? Are they helpful? Um, yeah. Yeah. Great, great question, Natalie. Yes. Okay. So on the one hand, I will say, yes, it is critically important for anybody, especially people who are kind of going against the grain to have a support group. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yes. it, we can't, I cannot... I cannot overestimate the value of just having people who understand and appreciate your experience as opposed to those microaggressions. We all know what they're like when you try to talk about what's happening to you and people just don't want to believe it. Right. This happens a lot to women, I think, in, in, in trades, you know, it's all in your head. It can't be that bad. It's not just you. You're, you're, you're seeing sexism where there isn't really any, you know, we're told this a lot. So it's a lot. This is like critical for, for us to be able to come together and like feel seen and heard and know that we're not crazy. It's like the whole world's trying to gaslight us out there. (laughs) So we can come together and be like, no, no, we're not crazy. Okay. This is real. I feel seen and heard. So that is critical, but it's not the only thing that needs to be done. Of course, what needs to be done is actually addressing this problem at its source. So something that is in development with us. So we do this on a very casual way now, but I'd like to formalize it. I of course know you all of these bosses. Right. Yes. I know, I, I know these men. I know them. They're my customers. I know them. They're my colleagues. I work with these mm-hmm. people. I have business dealings with them. Right. So in my own casual way, I do my work of holding them accountable for the company culture. I would like to see that formalized and I would love to um, complement our blue collar happy hour with a 
like a man, like a man boss version (laughs) where it's like, where they're coming together to like, let's talk about what are your statistics? What is, do you have women on your crew? What are you doing to protect them? How are you trying to help address these biases? I, I pay. Yeah. And the pay, like, can we do an analysis of gender and pay at your company? Right. Uh Let's create a culture where in Savannah, you want to keep up with the Joneses. Like you have to treat women well. Right. At your company. Now that's like a much steeper climb, of course, but it's critical. It needs to be done. And the other thing we do, the sort of insidious is of course, as we place our graduates in positions of leadership at this company, we are creating that change. Right. Yeah. 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 Like Kirsten. Like, like Kirsten. Yeah. Kirsten's first graduate. She's she like, gets a oh. shout out on this. <laughs> Kirsten, I love you. I talk about yeah. her on every interview I do because she is great. really, she's <laughs> the goal. So Kirsten is the one who came to me absolutely obsessed with historic buildings. She's a total preservation. She's got a master's in historic preservation from SCAD. She was working on it when I met her. Um, would love, wanted to, always wanted to be a lot more hands-on, but felt very intimidated. So saw me on the Instagram, came to me and asked for a job, had no experience, was afraid of power tools. And then flash forward a year later, Kirsten is in a safety harness strapped to a 40 foot boom lift in the air, hanging out of the cage with a sawzall, dropping a wall off the side of a building from 1875, right? Wearing a hard hat. She's a beast. And so when she graduated, she went on to get a job as a project engineer with JTVS, which is one of the most important preservation companies in Savannah. And now she's the boss. Now she runs the job site and she creates what that culture is like. Right. And she's paving the way for more women to come behind her, both in positions of leadership and, you know, straight up grunt workers, right. which are like the backbone of every construction and demolition company. It is. And that gender aside, I also think it's so valuable to have people in administrative roles with that hands-on experience. Oh, yes. Um, There's just so much you can't know until you go through a day, you know, and it's it's invaluable to have that job site experience before you start trying to run a job site, in my opinion. Yeah. No, and the amount of respect that it's garnered her and how much of a better rapport she has with her crew than some of the other project engineers, just because she, she can back up what she's saying, because she has done it and she does know how to exactly. do it. It's, it's very huge- different when you know that your manager is willing to also be out there and hear yes. the heat and the yes. humidity and, and work dirty. those 10 hour days and get dirty. And they're not just saying it because it needs to be get get done, but because they could also do it and they would also do it, you know? Yeah. And speaking and well. experience. Yeah. So that's my pivot into training. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, it's Nick here. And I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. So obviously with Preservation Maryland and the Campaign for Historic Trades, very clearly my position is developing these training routes to a career path. Um, And what you spoke to earlier is you have to train on the job 
because there's to. no industry already. Like we're creating the industry. Yeah, That's true across a lot of preservation where it's just a subset and a niche and mm. of a current trade. And we end up doing a lot of on the job training. So, yeah. oh man, where do we start with training? Oh, <laughs> okay. So what are your training needs? How long does it take for somebody to start and get through and become a competent, independent worker on a job site? What's that look like? Yeah, we ask for a year. I want a year of at least 20 hours a week. That's what I want. Okay. And I do think it takes that long to get to get to the next level of competency. Right. Right. Regardless of what you're coming in with, whatever your level is to get to the next one while gaining the very specialized skill set that this industry requires. And it is very specialized. Yes. Uh, yeah. It takes, a, it takes about a year. Uh, and obviously if you're full time and if you're coming in with a lot of skill sets, you might get there a little faster. Like Katie, my number two, uh, she graduated in eight months. I mean, there was no point trying to keep her in a training program. Like she was ready to run the show. Right. But Katie was an exceptional example who did have a lot of skills and she did work full time. So she got there very, very quickly and she was right. born for this as well. So there's, if you're born for it, it might take a little less time, but I think a year is pretty reasonable. And there's nobody who's gone through my program for a year and hasn't come away transformed. You know, you will gain skills. You will learn a lot. You will learn a lot. Right, right. And you are working on making an actual apprenticeship track. In tandem with Savannah Tech and si yeah. signing up the curriculum. What was the reasoning for going that formalized route? Why did you want to work with Savannah Tech? Why did you want to register it with the state to make it a standard training curriculum? What were the goals of that? Of, yeah, a number of reasons. Obviously, the first and foremost and probably most significant is so that our graduates have more accreditation to what they've accomplished with us. It's not right. just us saying that they've done something awesome. It's also an accredited institution saying they've done something awesome and we're putting our name on their effort. So that's a huge reason. Um, the other reason is honestly, just to streamline what we're doing. So like, there's a lot of overlap between what we're teaching, especially, you know, I, I keep saying we'll take people who don't have any experience at all. Um, there's a lot of basics you got to cover. Trade school is already doing that. So I could teach every single person who comes through our program, how to swing a hammer and not hit their thumb or, <laughs> or I can just send them to Savannah Tech and have them take the tool use and safety class where they're going to learn that and get credit for it. And I'm going right. to pay for it. So, you know, it's all win for them. So they right. get, you know, it, it takes the burden of teaching a lot of the repetitive basics off of me so that me and my crew, the trainers on my crew can really focus on the specialized knowledge. Right. Right. Um, and it also means that everybody is getting the same, the same standard of basics, which helps, you know, unite, unite and unify everybody's learning process. So, yeah, what is the value of standard training and that piece of paper that's universal? You know, why is it different of you saying, yes, these people have mm -hmm. this training versus Savannah Tech saying, yes, these people have this training? What well, is the difference? It really comes down to who's hiring, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who's hiring might know me. They might be one of the companies in town that where I've already placed graduates and they already know that our graduates are super high quality, great workers with lots of skills. So they're going to be like, great, repurpose Savannah. That means something to me and I'm going to hire this person. Right. But what if my graduate moves to another state and is looking for a job? Repurpose Savannah doesn't mean anything in, a, in Iowa. Right. But an accredited 
technical college, regardless of where it is, means something. So that just gives a little protection for the investment of time and energy that our apprentices have made to be sure that 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 will carry and translate regardless of where they're looking for a job. And so what's the difference though between them just going to Savannah Tech like you and I did Uh, and paying for it? What's the value of that versus the apprenticeship? Oh gosh, great. I know it's a a little bit of a lob, but (laughs) because I know. Take a swing at it. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I I think that it is um, apples and oranges. So I went through the Savannah Tech program and the Savannah Tech program is amazing, but it is still an education program and you can take field trips and you can do weekend workshops and you can get your hands on stuff in the real world but it is still limited by comparison to your classroom experience. So most of the hands-on training is actually occurring in a controlled environment, which is great. That's where it should be occurring. When you enroll in our program, you are going to get that plus 20 hours a week minimum of in the field on the job site training. And we are a professional demo crew. So you are learning not only the technical skills, but also how to function as part of a crew, timeliness, appropriate safety measures, looking out for each other, managing your endurance, building your physical strength, how to work for a 10 hour day of hard labor. You don't learn that in a classroom. Classes don't last 10 hours. They don't. How to use a ratchet strap. How to use a ratchet. How to use a ratchet strap. (laughs) That is a 10 hour class in itself, apparently. (laughs) I have people who I have shown several times who are smart and capable who are still like, can you help me with this? I think it's just, yeah. it's deceptively easy. You're yes. just like, it shouldn't be this easy. People and so I'm going them. to complicate it. But yeah, yeah. there's yeah. no reason if you're in a class in a school, you don't need yeah. to know how to load up a truck and a trailer and yeah. make sure things don't fly off on the highway. Yes, that's you so true. Yeah. I, I, we can't even quantify it. We can't even put on a list. If we sat here all day, we probably wouldn't be able to write down all the things, those little things that you learn working with a crew in a field that you won't learn in the school, in the school, in the school context. Yeah. And then what's also the value of compensating people for that time? Why can't you just have a free intern? Oh my gosh, that's so wrong. I don't believe in that. Okay. This is also a soft lob for you, but you know. Thank you. I think people should be paid for their labor. We undervalue labor in particular. I just... Yeah, we could go down a really ideological rabbit hole here, but I do believe in fair pay for your labor. I I don't even think I pay people enough. I'd love to pay them more. I'm constantly working on paying them more. We just did a little bump for our crew. So I'm so happy. Congratulations. Thank you. I don't want to pay anybody less than $15 an hour. I'm working on getting everybody up to that level and above it. It's it's, it's hard because of our many financial challenges, but um, that's a priority. It is a priority. And I also just don't want to create this notion in people's minds that their their labor isn't worth compensation. Right. They right. need to be very confident of the fact that they need to earn a very good way. I mean, and you can earn a great wage working in construction and demolition. A lot of starting pay is around $18, $20 an hour. I mean, that's wonderful. Right, right. And you could, you could go the route of not paying them, but you have chosen to prioritize. Yeah. The vast majority of our budget goes to paying people. Of course, I'm a nonprofit, of course. And in the beginning, we worked with a lot of volunteers, but it's, you know, it's, it's a number of things. Number one, I don't believe in not paying people. Number two, there's a safety concern. And I really want, you know, people right. to be paid right. professionals who are doing this work. And then um, 
the last aspect, which I just had in my mind and I think just flew out. Don't know. Equity. <laughs> Equity. Yes. Yes. There, I'll just I'll throw that one Thank out. You. Abby, you know, my, you yeah. know, my brain. Do you yeah. live in there? I think you do. Yeah. Yes. That's part it. of it. I mean, there, there's already a gender pay problem. There's already a pay gap. Like let's not be training women and simultaneously telling them that their effort isn't worth you know, hey, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And yes, that's all what we're working on too, because I had a few of those realization moments where I was working on a project, realizing I was paying to do the project. And usually, a man could start cold off the street with no skills and yeah. be paid to be doing exactly what I was doing. Yes. And it was um, a very, one of those disheartening moments that mm-hmm. <laughs> somehow didn't deter me. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's really common in, because preservation in particular is rife with a lot of unpaid internships and we understand why, right? Preservation right. budgets are small. Preservation jobs tend to be degreed, which require a certain amount of income, which nobody is earning like what they deserve. And preservation, nobody's getting paid what they deserve. And that's true from for, in a lot of white collar positions as well. So, you know, I'm trying to stand up to two industries. I'm trying to yeah. stand up to the construction and demolition industry, but I'm also trying to stand up to the preservation industry and say, like, yes. we can do better. Like, find a way, you know, fundraise. We, we, we subsidize a lot of our income with fundraising, whether it's grants or private donations. And we, we do hustle that. And I know, you know, a lot of nonprofit organizations are out there, or preservation organizations are out there doing the same thing, but you need to be doing that with a specific goal of paying people, with right. paying people. That's right. what fundraising for. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is a American systematic problem too. You know, it's not just trades, it's not just preservation, but American general, like you said, undervalues labor and underpays people, especially degreed people and a lot of fields. Yeah. So it's a, there's, there's a, you know, there's associations there with classism and there's, there's racism in there and there's sexism in there. All the isms are conspiring. Yes, they are to create this reality where People aren't being valued, um, and we, we're we're just conscientiously standing against that. That's a it's a very admirable stand, and I, I know not always easy to keep on standing up against. It's not, and I got to tell you, you know, I'm going to show my cards here a little bit. Like I'm the boss, right? And I run a nonprofit, and I have a crew of ten women, and it is a very hard job. It's a wonderful job, and I love this job. It's the best job I've ever had, but. <laughs> I don't make any money. <laughs> I, I, yeah. It's hard. It's hard for me. And now I, I, I partially don't make any money because I insist on paying my crew right. the money that we earn. And I wish, and as, as a result, they are working tirelessly to help me grow this company to the point where we can all do better. Right. So my investment in them is an investment in myself and in our future. And I want that to be the way that capitalism works instead of this extractive model, which is I'm investing in myself and I'm going to take it at whatever cost from everybody below me. Right. Right. What is a, what's the opposite of extractive? Injective? No, that's not a good word. (laughs) That's not a good word. (laughs) I'm not doing that. (laughs) No, No, we'll come up with it. it, It's like an investing model. There we go. It's an investment. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Definitely. Investing is better than injecting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bad connotations of that. Yeah. <laughs> Although if anyone listening wants to inject some money into our nonprofit, you are more than welcome. Well, okay. Here's a, here's a good pivot then. Like where can they find out more about you? If somebody wants to get involved, somebody wants to learn about some of those advocacy things, what, what can they do? How can they get in touch with you? Yeah, great. We're super easy to find. So obviously our website is um, very robust. There's a lot of information on that website about all the aspects of everything we do. You can read about our programs. You can also read about our projects. You can make donations through our website and you can find our contact information there. And that's repurposesavannah.org. But if you really want to glimpse into our day-to-day, you should follow us on social. I'm a hardcore Instagram user for our company and um, we post all the time. So if you'll watch our stories, you're, you're very likely to see some ladies taking a building apart on any given day, um, being their bad selves. <laughs> we, like to, we like to show off and it's fun and it's interesting. And who doesn't like to watch walls fall over and who doesn't like, right. you know, making historic discoveries in tiny corners. So right. follow along, stay tuned. And you can purchase items online too, right? Not only the material goods, but some of the craft items on the website as well, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, Make a yeah, plug for it. Thank you, Natalie. You're so You're good welcome. at this. welcome. <laughs> yeah, so you can browse a lot of our materials catalog. I try to list as much as possible. Not everything does make its way onto the website. That's just the nature of the business. Um, but if you don't live here or if you want to do like a little pre-shop, please peruse our web store. But yes, you will also see in addition to all of our material stock, um, lots of, not lots of, I wish there was more, but that's sort of like a tough, it's a tough extra company to run on top of these other companies we're already running. Um, but whenever we can, whenever we have time or a flash of particular inspiration or particularly cool small batch materials, we'll, we'll try to produce some craft goods. So we have cool things like coasters for sale and picture frames and things like that. Do you ship any of the building materials? If somebody lived in Charleston, can you ship or did they have to come and pick up? I will absolutely ship. Yes. All right. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> yeah, Come and get it or don't right. come. I'll send it to you. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> okay. And then the final question, the hardest one, what is your favorite historic place or site? Oh, that is such a hard one. Isn't it? <laughs> okay. I'm going to give you an answer that my preservation audience here might not like, but um, Ooh, I okay. think my favorite places. So when I travel, I always do two things. I look for salvage places wherever yep. I'm going because I want to see how they're doing it and what they're doing. But the other thing I do is I go onto um, a, a website that has a map of um, existing stands of old growth forest which is very rare. There's only 3% of the old forest left on the face of the planet. So when I travel, I like to see if there's anything nearby and I make a point to go and walk in those forests. So these are not built environment, but they are historic. They're very important historic places. (laughs) They're way older than our country. (laughs) And um, they're just so um, powerful and special. And I'm fully obsessed with those trees. And there's a I can't describe what it feels like. It's like spiritual, you know, the air changes when you walk into an old grove, a forest that's never been cut. It's never seen the ax. The soil's never been compacted by harvesters. Um, special and magical. That's my favorite. I a hundred percent agree with you. I worked on a project in a national wilderness area in Alaska mm. and exactly what you said, the forest floor 
never having been cleared. It was just trees on top of trees. They were yeah. fallen trees with trees growing out of them. Yeah. And it, it felt magical. like a magical fairyland. I'm not it does lie. feel like yes. magic in the air. It's, it's special. Yes. I feel like everybody <laughs> in their lifetime should experience what it's like to walk in an uncut forest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like it changes you a little bit. Of course, I'm setting expectations and people are going to be like, it's just some trees. <laughs> I guess it depends on who you are, but for me, it, it's profound. Yeah, I think anybody who's going to make the time and effort will probably get some type of profound experience out of it. So, (laughs) all right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on this interview. I see your cats join, which means it's time for you to feed them and time for us to (laughs) to end. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on Preserve Cast today, the trades takeover, the first ever. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.